0: This episode of the A.D. History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, supporting the show on Patreon. Join Odo's A.D. Army at patreon.com slash A.D. Podcast, where you can enjoy new episodes 48 hours early, the special director's cut version of each episode, and more. Join us in creating the A.D. History you deserve, and go to patreon.com slash A.D. History Podcast to learn more. Thank you.
1: The Soviets and us were on the same side. What I'm doing will help Breton. I have to tell Denniston. No, you don't. Because if you tell him my secret, I'll tell him yours.
2: This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR. By visiting tgnreview.com. Now, here are your hosts, Paul K. DeCostanzo and Patrick Foote.
0: And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DeCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, how are you
3: today? I am absolutely fantastic paul fantastic for a handful of reasons one because we're here recording another great episode of ad history two because the sun's out here in the uk which makes me very happy and three because not only we're recording an episode of ad history we are recording an ad history watches episode of our podcast where we sit back get to watch a film and get to critique it and understand the historical context of that film Paul, I'm sure you're super excited about this one, as as am I.
0: Yes, indeed. We are yet again, once upon another edition of AD History Watches, and our film for today. If you are a long time or slightly longer time listener of AD History, you know what's about to happen here. This has been. No mystery. The only question is when it was going to show up for you to listen Mm. or watch to. And that is, of course, the 2014 biopic, The Imitation Game. Benedict Cumberbatch, Kara Knightley. About one Alan Turing. And this is a guy who has made just a tremendous contribution to humanity in general. Oh, gosh, yeah. In the extreme. And of course, his life is both thematically about genius and absolute tragedy. Yeah. Because for somebody that made the contributions he did when he did and the stakes at which those contributions took place. It's absolutely criminal in terms of what happened to him. But part of this is going to be understanding how this all went down and what it was all about. And. You know, I don't think it's anything other than an open secret to know that yours truly has some issues with this film.
3: Yeah, I that is understandable from the historian perspective. This film has quite a few issues, to say the least, from the actual events and the order they occurred to the character of these of, to, to the literal character of these characters that they are not at all in ways we knew these historical people to really act and behave there's some real big differences between Cumberbatch's portrayal of Turing and the real Alan Turing himself there's some huge differences there
0: oh yeah this movie if you know the history and Mm. you know it well this movie can drive you a a bit batty despite the fact that as a film it is actually enjoyable but We'll get into that incredible contradiction in its existence here in Mm. a moment, but with all of that in mind and all of it out of the way, it is time to lay down our necessary obligatory, now legendary, AD History Podcast, Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Well, Patrick, this movie doesn't make a lick of sense to anybody watching unless they really understand the context in which it happens in more detail Hmm. than really the movie portrays. The movie is very scant on these details, but we're about to give you some context that will give you a much greater example and accounting Mm. of what really was happening here. So, of course, this movie takes place during the Second World War. So keep
3: that in mind. Yeah. And in regards, you're saying like you only actually see sparse glimpses of actual battle being take battle taking place. Uh, during, this, uh, during this film, it's very much a behind the scenes sort of look at It's, it, it, It's not a war film in that conventional sense of people go out guns blazing.
0: Not in the least. No. So, with that in mind, I
1: think it is best to set the scene.
0: 1 September 1939, Nazi Germany invades Poland. 3 September 1939. Britain and France declare war on Germany in defense of
3: Poland. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note, stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany.
0: 17 September 1939. The Red Army invades Poland from the east, effectively bifurcating the country between themselves and Nazi Germany in accordance with the Molotov ribbentrop track from less than a month prior. Late September 39, early October, Poland Fall. April 1940, Germany invades Norway and Denmark. 10 May 1940, Germany invades France, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. And at the end of June 1940, France formally capitulates to Nazi Germany. In this first nine months of the war, Patrick, Mm -hmm. it has been an absolute disaster for Great Britain. In that very brief span of time, most of continental Europe has come under the Nazi jackboot. Though they would go on to win the Battle of Britain and endure the Blitz, the island nation benefited, quite luckily, from. Fortunate strategic asymmetry. Germany didn't have the naval prowess to cross the Channel and invade, and Britain at that stage only really had strategic bombing, in addition to, of course, the greatest blue-water navy in the world. Mm -hmm. That being said, there was one issue that hounded the Allies throughout the war and Britain very extensively, and that was merchant naval shipping keeping the material lifeline between the rest of the empire and North America open. They were battling against a highly efficient U-boat, or submarine, campaign to keep from having the country literally starved off from supplies of food and material resources for the production of war materials. Churchill famously stated that the only thing that truly scared him during the war was the U-boat peril. Yet, the British did have one highly secret weapon throughout all of this, with its capacity for doing it increasing throughout the war, and that was Ultra. Mm. Ultra was the code name for the top secret decoding, deciphering work being done at the Government Coding and Cipher School (GC&CS), better known today as Bletchley Park or Station X. This is where battling Enigma and later the Lorenz machine principally, took place. And so the question we need to ask now that we understand the circumstances and just how dire the situation was for your country in particular, (laughs) and quite frankly, even though we were not yet in the war in 39 and 40, for mine as well. Mm. So where does Air Island Turing fall into this? Well, in many ways, quite fittingly. So he was born in London in 1912. He was one of the sons of a British civil servant that made his career in India. Indeed, Alan was truly a child of empire in that regard. But as a serious consequence of this arrangement was that his parents were largely absentee. And of course, you at that point in time, and certainly earlier if you're looking at Victorian or Edwardian England, it was not uncommon that you would basically dump off your kids with somebody and then go gallivanting. Mm. It's kind of hard to imagine today
3: in oh, many ways. Well, what's interesting about this, Paul, is this sort of story, these uh, this early days, these early days of Turing, remind me so much of Tolkien. He was very much a man of the same sort of time period. He was born in South Africa, I believe, and was sent back to England from South Africa, much in the same way Turing uh, was dumped off back in England by his parents. I, mean, so I, didn't, I think Tolkien's parents passed away when he was very young, but it just, that is the story that really came to mind when you were saying about this.
0: It's a very foreign experience to us both from the
3: modern mm. age, without it. Oh, doubt. gosh, yeah, yeah, gosh, yeah.
0: There's a lot of talk about Alan Turing and his personality and his various personality quirks and what he was like. Mm. And according to the family, they believe that the, the main driving factor in his shyness and somewhat awkward social skills at times though by no means as bad as he was depicted in the film mm. was that without his parents and him largely being pawned off is that he didn't really get that natural rearing socially one needs from their parents but he was not a social inept, as is shown in the film to the point of damn near parody
3: gosh this film this portrait i'm sure it's everyone can talk about down the line as well Paul the portrayal of Turing in this film not just Turing but like that type of character as a whole this is a really like prime time in film and media where this sort of socially inept genius was coming into its light we had films like um, The Fear of Everything the Stephen Hawkins biopic came out around a similar time and even if you talking about parody I believe you're not too familiar with this but it goes into Sheldon Cooper territory from the Big Bang Theory the way his social ineptitude uh, displayed—it's—it's it's bizarre.
0: Yeah, it, it really, mm. it really is. And yeah, you know, something that is interesting about the portrayal here, since we were talking about Benedict Cumberbatch, mm. in a lot of ways, especially at this time, considering this comes out in 2014, which means it's shot in 2012, 2013. Mm. At this time, he was also very. Famously portraying in the very popular depiction of the BBC's Sherlock Holmes. Their more modern adaptation. Yeah.
3: It's what brought him to the limelight.
0: And I feel like there, there there is a cross-pollination going on there in these performances. Because there are times when he depicts Turing in such a way that he comes off like a total ass. In a very Sherlockian <laughs> way. Specifically. Yeah. Cumberbatch's Sherlock. Where you feel like there, there are times when he just wants to blurt out and say, Anderson, turn around, you're bringing down the IQ of the entire room.
3: <laughs> that is so true. There are so many similarities between this portrayal of Turing and Cumberbatch's portrayal of uh, Sherlock. They're startlingly similar. But on top of that, I believe I was reading into it, Graham Moore, he wrote the screenplay for this. I believe he actually also wrote a novel all kind of about Sherlock. Not so much a nonfiction book about Sherlock, but like inspired by Sherlock. There's basically a love letter to Sherlock Holmes. So this is a guy really into Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes stuff, and he's got Cumberbatch here to play with. It's unsurprising that there was some cross-pollination between the two.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a reasonable extrapolation here mm. because from everything that I've learned about Alan Turing, this wasn't him at all.
3: No, from what I read about him as well, he sounded like an absolutely lovely, charming, warm, witty person. In many ways, he was. He's interesting because,
0: obviously, he's prodigiously intelligent.
3: Yeah.
0: I mean, he becomes a professor at age 23 at Cambridge. first What class were you doing at 23?
3: Box. What were you doing? Like, what were, what were we doing at 23? I
0: was in university, <laughs> and it was certainly not teaching the thing, I can assure oh, you. Oh, yeah. And definitely not in mathematics, my God. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about him is one is he had a prodigious imagination in addition to his intelligence. And while he obviously could be very serious and get down to some very hard work, he also had a certain, if I understand it, kind of almost a childlike nature that at times even bordered on naivety. And this Hmm. later on in terms of uh, what happens to him up in Manchester ends up being something very serious indeed. But let me give you an idea of the kind of eccentricity that Turing had. And he was not even like the most eccentric person at Bletcherty Park by no. any means whatsoever.
3: If you, if you put that amount of brain boxes in one room together, you get some pretty eccentric people.
0: This is true. So in this case, this story comes from Sir Max Hastings, who's written a, yeah, has voluminous writings on the Second World War. And specifically from, I believe it was his 2016 book. Uh, the Secret War, fantastic book, mm-hmm. where he's talking about Turing, and he mentions a story where Turing gets it into his head that he wants to learn how to use and shoot a firearm. And so what he goes and does, this is while he's working at the park, is mm-hmm. that he joins the local chapter of the Home Guard, Dad's Army, which for yep. those that are not familiar with the local defense volunteers, were basically soldiers that were kind of in a somewhat reserved capacity in case the nation got invaded. And especially with the fact that most of the army for most of the war was deployed overseas Mm. and they had to be ready for that. Luckily the Germans were never close to being able to do it, but you still had to be ready. And Mm. so he went and volunteered and he he fulfilled this ambition of his, but he was very, very irritating to his commander because he wouldn't show up to do anything else. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, which is, which is funny as hell. Yeah. You know, But it gives you an idea of kind of like a certain fanciful side of him.
3: Yeah, he was really like, that's a very, very, very eccentric person in the way the film just doesn't depict him.
0: Yeah, it's true. And But what was undeniably clear about him from a young age was, of course, his prodigious intelligence, specifically mathematics, making Professor by 23, and a colleague of his at Hut 8 in Bletchley Park. And we'll talk more about what this is all about Mm -hmm. in a moment. This is a paraphrase of what he said about his interactions with Alan. That most, with most people, when they came up with an idea, this fellow usually felt he could have come up with it as well. But when Alan came up with an idea, he was always taken aback by Alan's original thinking, where this colleague recognized he personally would never have come up with this (laughs) amazing idea himself. Above all else, Turing possessed the genius for original thinking. That's a very special thing.
1: Okay, get you far in life.
0: It certainly can. And regarding his work as the park, well, Turing was not the originator of the, you know, the famed decoding bombs, which mm. are, in this case, the movie refers to him calling them uh, Christopher, which is a nod to a childhood relationship that he very much cherished back when he was in, I think, like boarding primary school.
3: Yeah, and it's greatly exaggerated in the film, if I'm correct. Yeah, There's
0: a lot of liberties taken there, but he was not the originator of these bombs. That was originally the work of three Polish mathematicians that did it just prior to the war, where the French and the British all of a sudden took a lot of interest in this, even though their model of it had become outdated because of the Germans actually updating the Enigma. So they ended up doing their work in France until France became invaded, then they were evacuated to England. So he didn't come up with the idea, but he recognized its potential to do a lot more and improve on it in a tremendously large way. And that's awfully interesting, and it was very important indeed. Now that we kind of have the general idea of what Alan Turing, who he was and what he was all about, and his general role here at Bletchley, I think it's important to look at the general opening scene, ongoing side story that's happening in Manchester yes. in the early
3: 50s. As we hinted towards where this film starts, basically towards the end of Turing's life. Spoilers. It, yeah,
0: yeah. It's, it's not perfectly linear by any mm. means. It's not perfectly linear storytelling. So in the debacle that led to Turing's eventual conviction for gross indecency in the early 50s, never at any point... In under interrogation, did Turing divulge his wartime exploits to a Manchester detective? That would have been out of bounds and illegal in the extreme because of signing the Official Secrets Act. If you're not familiar with the Official Secrets Act, that was a, I think it still is, a very large uh, piece of legislation in Great Britain that deals with how classified information is controlled and what you can do with it, what you can't do with it there are similar agreements from many powers around the world when you enjoy when you join an intelligence service. In this case, Bletchley Park was a SIGINT outpost, or signals intelligence, basically. The modern NSA intercepting signals, decoding them, and generating intelligence from that. But a few things that are important to know. One is, in terms of this particular element of the story, one is it lets the viewer into the story, so it's kind of a narrative tool. And it's also a thematic tool in the idea that clearly the writers, director and producer is trying to portray the idea of how a mind that works differently. Mm. Hence the reason they're talking about machine intelligence and AI and, you know, not so subtly trying to place that on him. Unlike in the film where it claims almost nothing was taken in this case because he was robbed, all right? the The reason mm. the police are there is because he's robbed. And he had been robbed by a friend of uh, a young man whom Turing had an on and off ongoing relationship with. And so when Turing called the Manchester police to report the robbery, Turing was actually looking to get back his grandfather's stolen watch. So he was not this totally uncooperative, absent-minded ass that you see in that scene by any means. He had a very specific reason for letting the cops know. He wanted to get his grandfather's watch back. That was his big thing. Mm. And the problem was, whereas he was shown as evasive in the movie, in truth, Turing, in his unfortunate naivety, admitted everything about the situation to the police to a fault. And I mean literally everything. No Mm. detail withheld. You can figure this out for yourself. We do not need to be any more clear on that subject because you should get what we're saying. Mm. For whatever reason... It never properly dawned on him that it would make him a target for the police, as opposed to being helping out the victim of a robbery. And of course, this led to his conviction of gross indecency in the early fifties and the use of what they called at the time chemical castration against Turing.
3: It, it's absolutely terrible. It is. It, yeah, it's a crime. It's awful. It's a crime it, against yeah. him. Yeah,
0: and and we know at the time in the West that. To be gay was not accepted, yeah, at all. And in the case of Turing, something that was very unique for him, since he was involved in such sensitive work during the war, and the British government was very keen for it not to become better known in terms of their code-breaking efforts, they were always afraid that Turing being gay could be used as blackmail against him by yeah. by a foreign enemy intelligence service, like, for example, the MGB or KGB, as it would eventually end up being called by the Soviets. And so they were always kind of keeping an eye on him, and they were frustrating his personal life in a number of ways. But he, went under, he underwent this, and obviously nobody is going to be the same after that. However, according to those who knew him best at the time, He never outwardly showed the kind of emotional instability that the movie depicts, and nobody ever recalls him acting like that at the time. But what's interesting is Alan was still Alan, which is to say that he took his genius and he took the experience that he was undergoing physiologically that led him to create some rather groundbreaking work in mathematical biology. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of mind we're dealing with here, and he's quite incredible for that.
3: Mm, Oh, gosh, amazing.
0: We've talked about a little bit in terms of who he was and what he did. And so the first thing we do need to look at, of course, is his time at Bletchley. Mm. More specifically, Bletchley was unique for a lot of different reasons. But the biggest reason was how it brought in so many of the greatest minds in the country to work there as well as the fact that most of these specialized employees, whether it be codebreakers, translators, analysts, they were all civilians. Not once did they try and put them into uniform, unlike the Germans with their codebreakers over at the B-Dienst, nor did they ever try to water down their personal eccentricities, for which, as I said before, Alan was far from the most eccentric. Yeah,
3: and the film portrays them like so differently to what they were like in real life. His his colleagues? Yeah, his co-workers, his colleagues, they're all like very well-to-do, sort of fancy, Etonian, well-to-do, good old boy types. And yeah, that wasn't the case at all.
0: No, 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 not at all. These guys were all very much eccentric as well, and as were so many other people in the park. And you were mentioning it earlier, about Mm. how you get a lot of really smart people in the same place, that Eccentricity is certainly not off the table. It's something to kind of expect, and that's kind of the amazing thing about it in the best way. In this case, not only were they extremely eccentric, a lot of them, despite how the movie depicts this, is that they were all nearly as intelligent as he was.
3: It portrays the rest of them as like, yeah, as being sort of dumb and like, and what I was thinking is, to begin with, none of them like Alan. Do you know if that was true in reality? Did he come off to a bad start with these other people? But Total to balling. begin with, yeah, the film, they all just think he's a big weirdo and just sit him in the corner or he chooses to sit in the corner. Like, that isn't true at all.
0: They were all weirdos in yeah. the best way. And for him, the amazing part about it was that he was, especially when you're going and you're having interviews later on, with people that worked with him, And a documentary that I would definitely recommend to our, to you listening or watching is you should go and take a look for a documentary that was made either in 99 or 2000 by BBC4. You can find it right there on YouTube called Station X. I believe it's in hmm. four parts or like 50 minutes each. And they talked to a lot of people who worked at the park. And for some of them, it was the first time they'd ever spoken openly on the subject, despite the fact that Ultra became largely declassified in the 1970s. Even still, that's 30 years after the war. And they always spoke very, very highly of him. So the very few of them actually called him Alan. They just called him the prof. And mm. they were very much in awe of him. And they liked him. Now, um, they did mention how his, his so, you know, it could be a bit socially awkward, and especially around women. Mm. And, like, I remember there was this one female colleague that he had where she mentioned the first time she met Alan, where she offered him a cup of tea, and he just kind of like shrank away like you could see it in his body language like he was going to be, you know, put up for execution. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about.
3: Yeah, and something else, about you said he was referred to as the prof. That's like a nickname that comes with a connotation of elderliness and wise, but he was not an old man at this point by any means. He was still in no. his 20s and I guess the rest of them, they're all just like young men in their 20s. Like, this was a group of young guys. Like, yeah, that's something I think worth noting as well.
0: Absolutely. Mm. So, and on top of that, and this is also kind of important, we'll talk about more in a bit. Mm. But the other thing about this movie, and it kind of is correlated with another underlying issue in the film. Mm. The film makes it look like it's the Alan Turing show.
3: That's not the case at all. they were all... Instrumental parts in uh, breaking Enigma.
0: Yeah. So, one of the things about the movie that uh, where it comes short, unfortunately, is that it doesn't give a sense of scale in regards to the size of the operation of Bletchley Park, which by the end of the war in 45, had roughly around 10,000 people working there. And they worked in all different capacities, which I mentioned earlier, doing a lot of different things. So, with that in mind, how did Bletchley Park even work? Because that's yeah. something that is, is definitely misportrayed in this film in terms of what they were actually doing there. So it had three primary missions, right? They take the, the raw coded intercept from British Y stations. And for those who are not familiar with what Y stations are, Y stations were a network of radio receiving stations that was one of the last great infrastructure accomplishments of the British Empire, where if there was some kind of shortwave signal, it would pick it up. Literally, this is a chain of Y stations that ran from Edinburgh to Singapore. Yeah. Quite quite a strategic advantage, to say the least. Bletchley Park also, of course, went and decoded these intercepts. They translated them into English. They performed intelligence analysis of the decrypts, and then they organized and archived that information. And by the end of the war, Bletchley became a near-industrialized decoding and analysis operation. That's something I feel like really, really is not that clear in the film. Mm. So Bletchley had a fair amount of success doing code-breaking the old-fashioned way with Brain, Pen and paper, pen, paper and pencil, uh, through to late 1940. However, there, there's this one scene in the movie where his colleagues, most of which would have been with him in hut eight, and we'll talk about the hut system here in a moment, Patrick. Yeah. That says that their progress at this point, we're getting into like mid to late 1940, that the reason they're being stymied is, quote, because of you. This is the first notable example of the film making it seem like Bletchley Park was the one-man Turing show. But before these bombs ever consequently came online and started doing some big work, they had already broken Nazi Germany's Air Force, the Luftwaffe cipher red. A lot of that had to do with certain lack of discipline in coding and decoding on Mm. the part of the Germans, but they did it with brainpower, paper, and pencil. In this case, Alan Turing and quite a few of the people depicted in his little cohort there, though certainly not all of them. That was not an accurate portrayal of the people that are actually working in Hut 8. No. Turing worked in Hut 8, which dealt with the naval Enigma. There were numerous other huts and blocks that dealt with Enigma for other services as well. And so by by the end of the war, you know, you have 10,000 people in this operation. So it's organized into huts and blocks. Each hut specifically focused on efforts towards a specific task. One hut could be focused on Luftwaffe code breaking, another one on the German army, another Mm. one handled both the Italian and Japanese navy. And on top of that, you never discussed your work with those outside of your specific hut. Secrecy at Bletchley Park was obsessive. Because had the Germans ever seriously caught whiff of what was going on there and they came close more than a few times, the whole thing is going to go up in smoke. Because the second you realize that the enemy is reading your communications, hopefully, if you're any competent, if they're competent at all at war, they're going to change that.
3: Yeah, secrecy in a place like this is most important.
0: Absolutely. Yeah,
3: you can't, yeah, yeah.
0: And on top of that, just because you broke the code for that day doesn't mean you had all access information to all of the information that you seek. Like, for example, the location of absolutely every U-boat. They were not able to decode every message they intercepted. In fact, I think it maybe was somewhere around 40% at its height. So even with those they decoded, it only represented clues and scraps that needed to be analyzed and put together into a bigger picture which was not done by codebreakers the codebreakers didn't know or were involved in the process after the codebreaking itself took place they were never in you know they were never involved in intelligence analysis who was given access or how it was used the idea that Turing or any of the other codebreakers were involved in the way that it depicted in the scene in terms of when he ends up going and talking to the head of mi6 and mentioning that you know the higher-ups can't know about this is ridiculous they had no control over that and nor should they have so there was always a debate in terms of when where and how to use the information they got from ultra Mm. and these guys were just simply never a part of it
3: and that sort of leads into towards the end of the film when they do crack enigma and they choose very much how to use that information. It becomes a big thing towards the end. They choose not to save all the boats, only choose to save certain ones to so keep a low profile. It kind of ties into that as well, I suppose.
0: Yes, but that was being done at a much higher level than these guys. Of course, yeah. 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 So that's, that's the kind of the silliness of the movie to some degree. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit about some of these characters that show up in this film because there's some pretty strange stuff out there in terms mm. of what's happening. We were talking earlier about Commander Denison, which I believe was uh, portrayed by Charles Dancy.
3: Yes, Charles Dancy. Ta- Tywin yeah. Lannister? Yep, that's the one.
0: So he's basically the antagonist of this film. And the, the real crime here is that it really libels the dead. Because this doesn't depict how he was or how he operated in the least to the point where the family was very, very upset and, they, you know, they really broadcasted the fact that they thought this was libeling the dead, and nor did he ever, was he ever involved in, you know, going after Turing in any way. Alan Turing was never persecuted at Bletchley Park. Mm. And, you know, honestly, and I want to get your feeling on this, Patrick, mm. since they were making up so much shit anyway, <laughs> why didn't they just come up with an amalgam fictional character? to fill that role and just escape it entirely.
3: I think it's strange because despite how much you probably make up, I think people find it harder to swallow made up characters that they want at least the characters to have some degree of truth in them. Even just using the real names of real people. So I think making up a completely fictional character for such a large role in the film might've been a bit too much for some people to believe to even to get that this is based on a true story tagged that this film bears, by the way, I feel like they had to at least pretend he was a real, like pretend, like at least use the name and likeness of a real person anyway, even if everything else is completely, completely different.
0: And I like to think as if you're going to make that decision, you mm. do have some responsibility for portraying them accurately, at mm. the very least in terms of their demeanor. Even yeah. if all the facts aren't perfectly in line, it- and neither you nor I expect you know, a, a historically inspired movie to be 100% correct because then no. it's a documentary and then why not just make and watch a documentary?
3: Exactly. No, we know that. And we always say with AD History Watches, we, we, we get that people take liberties in history to make it more engaging and fun. And that's something we see here. Like normally the fun story in history tends to not be the correct one. Like it's often a bit more dull and not as eventful as often portrayed in things like film and TV. That's because they want to make it more engaging for viewers, yeah, you know, for the non-historical viewers. And this job, and, and, and changing characters like this, changing the core character of Alan himself, that served the purpose of making this more engaging for the casual viewer. And in the case of Denison,
0: let's, be, let's make sure we're totally clear on this part. He was highly supportive of his codebreakers. He was a veteran of the Admiralty's uh, Room 40 during the Great War. Mm and very much supported building the bombs, unlike how he's shown in the film. Mm. I know how to win a war. Military discipline speech is bollocks because Bletchley Park was far from a military organization and knew so many of their employees were off the wall. But they wanted them that way. They knew they had them at their best that way. What is interesting to note, though, Patrick, in terms of Mm. people that actually were adversarial towards Turing, though not to this degree, I think... The character, and I say character, I mean actual historical person, is a fellow by the name of Dilwyn Knox, who was an extremely smart, successful codebreaker, once again from Room 40 Mm -hmm. during the Great War. But he died in 1943 of cancer. So you have this very strange persecution thing going on from a guy who never did it, and you never even mention the guy in all likelihood who is actually adversarial, yeah. but not nearly in the same kind of way or to the same degree as portrayed in the film. The other person I definitely want to talk about with, with you is one Hugh Alexander, mm. and I think Hugh Alexander really embodies that old boys club, button up, good old pip pip British guy, yeah, Etonian kind of demeanor.
3: Yeah, he's in the one, one character. with the. Yeah, he's won the whole sort I've won the chess tournament twice, hasn't he? But
0: Yeah like, uh, <laughs> Yeah,
3: was 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 that true to any degree? Okay,
0: so he was a two time chess champion. And granted, this mm. is a nitpick. I'm not mm. gonna pretend that it isn't. But that conversation in the film was supposed to happen in late nineteen thirty nine, maybe early nineteen forty. Mm. And at that point he had only won it once. He wouldn't go on to win the second one until like the mid fifties.
3: Okay, so yeah, it's a bit of time traveling there.
0: Yeah, and as far as I know, in terms of Hut 8, I think a lot of what was credited to Hugh Alexander was actually supposed to be Gordon Welchman, which is kind of weird, but don't take me to court on that, but I'm pretty sure this is the case. The next person we really need to talk about here is Stuart Menzies, who's the head of MI6 or SIS. And the thing that's interesting about Stuart Menzies is that unlike his depiction in the film, Patrick, Hmm. he was very rarely present at Bletchley Park, especially in the early phases of the war. Max Hastings, in that same book, The Secret War, actually calls Stuart Menzies an absentee landlord regarding (laughs) Bletchley Park, which is the exact opposite of what we see here, where he's literally standing behind every corner and has the Has the drop on every secret and all the machinations for everything that's going on, Mm. and not only was he not that involved, depending on who you talk to and how surly they may be in their memoirs, he wasn't nearly that competent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. Very strange.
3: Likewise, in the film, he's seen as quite a big deal, like actually present there.
0: Yeah, and you know the whole idea. That he was trying to get Alan to become this effectively intelligence agent. You know, I always hoped you would. You you know you would be this Alan. is so ridiculous. It's absolutely unbelievable. He was a code breaker. Yeah, he was not human intelligence. He wasn't trying to deceive anybody. They wanted him there for one reason to do what he did best, and that wasn't Breakers,
3: it. yeah, no, yeah. Alan
0: Turing was was like the last guy you would ever want for human intelligence. Think about how earnest he was towards the police.
3: Yeah, flat out, very too earnest with them as, as, as we establish in reality.
0: Yeah, on top of that, this is kind of like the head of the CIA personally indoctrinating and generating a meaningful relationship with every new analyst that joins the agency's rank.
3: Yeah, it just doesn't happen. But likewise, to play devil's advocate for the film, you kind of need to have that interaction, you know, like... Turing needs to know who his big boss is to some extent, and they, they add it in. But yeah, in reality, like button pushers don't get to meet the big boss at all.
0: No, and he's this really like ambiguous figure. You never mm. really quite know where you come from, but he shows himself as so invested when mm. in reality, he was probably spending, in all, quite seriously, in all likelihood, a, a lot of long, boozy lunch breaks at White's Club. All right. Gosh, that's much, time much closer.
3: Yeah, still time to drink, even though there's a war going on.
0: Oh, and when it came to the intelligence services, Patrick, and there is no way to undersell oh. it, these guys drank like fishes.
3: Oh, even, I won't go into details, but I, even to this day, I hear there's a lot of alcohol involved in military. Yeah, but I the mean, British this military. case,
0: not just the British, well, obviously, MI6, yeah. section of military intelligence, but it's largely a civilian service. Yeah. So, but it still does, especially at that time, a very we've said this a few time old boys club culture of long boozy lunches mm, yeah to say that, that Menzies was that up on things is pretty silly pretty silly yeah.
3: but of course but one of the main characters in this film is uh, Keira Knightley's character and her story is kind of like one of the many subplots within this world about her being a woman not being able to work in Bletchley Park itself not being able to work in Hut 8 with the rest of the guys Uh, her pretending to be part of the working staff at Bletchley Park but secretly working as well and is there much accuracy to her narrative and especially the fact that she was to marry uh, Turin himself like is there much truth in all of that?
0: So there were definitely women code breakers
3: at Bletchley Park. Oh yeah I'm sure at that point and like across the war effort of minus being on the front and being on the battlefield women played a huge role in the wartime effort at home from, like, you know, factory workers, from roles women weren't traditionally in pre-war. With all the men off-fighting, they took over all sorts of roles. Of course they're going to have women like, co-breaking. They'll take anyone they can at that point.
0: As much as this was a a campaign, I think the mm. idea for, if you're listening, if you're familiar with this, and all likely you are, Rosie the Riveter existed for a reason. Yes, yeah. And it wasn't just industrial work. In the case of Bletchley Park, yeah, you definitely had I mean, definitely had women that were doing code breaking. Even though there certainly were were more men in that role, that's that's certainly true. But for example, there were a lot of women that were translators, uh, you know, from German into English or Italian and just Japanese into English, you know, whatever the case may be. As well as for the archiving part, but a lot of women actually who worked there were were wrens, which is of course the Women's Naval mm. Reserve that took care of the bombs and did a lot of administrative work. They did a lot of really, really strenuous, hard work that took on so many of the key responsibilities of making sure that operation moved smoothly. And in the case of Joan Clark, unlike how it's depicted in the film, though this is worthy of mentioning, she was actually recruited out of university. She mm. didn't, it wasn't like the big open call for. Those who are really good at crossword puzzles.
3: No, that that's just a good narrative thing, isn't it? I mean, I know there is actual history of uh, intelligence agencies putting crossword puzzles in papers to try and recruit people, but that just it just it it plays well narratively. It's a quick way to show someone smart,
0: basically, and something that and also show something that they did. Yes, yeah, I think Joan may have actually even been there prior to Alan Turing being there, which is interesting. Hmm. But in terms of their relationship, in in regards to her being at the park and her parents having an issue, first thing I'm going to say is you and I were talking about just a moment ago how women had become very involved in many of the aspects of the war. Mm. And when you are in a war that is total war, which means all of a nation's resources, all of it, are being put into defeating an existential threat like Nazi Germany. A lot of stuff goes out the window when you're talking about survival. And winning means surviving, and losing means extirpation. And in the case of Joan Clark, in the film portrayed by Kara Knightley, it shows that her parents have an issue with her working there as an unmarried woman. Mm. And while there could be some truth to this, it would take a tremendous, almost unthinkable level of gall for the parents of a woman to say, no, you can't do this part of the effort, of the war effort, specifically a part of it, you're not even allowed to tell us about. Because all everybody understood very clearly what was at hand. And whether it's your son or whether it's your daughter, and you're, they're in that kind of work that they can't even tell you about, they're not going to make a huge stink about it because they know what is at stake. But, as far as the romantic scenario, in terms of marrying Alan Turing, this did happen, but not for the reasons hmm. that it's shown in the film.
3: It's kind of shown to like take the cover off Turing, isn't it, to an extent? That's what it has displayed in the film.
0: To an extent. So, in the case of Joan Clark and Alan Turing, Alan Turing, and this comes from the 2011 biopic Codebreaker, which is a bar. Superior depiction of him compared to this. He was doing something that a lot of gay men uh, in Britain in particular at the time were trying to do. Which was they were trying to basically ignore or suppress the fact that they were gay and they were going to take a stab at being heterosexual and leading a married life. Certainly for that period of time. And she said yes. And he did tell her the reality of the situation. And when you see interviews with her about this particular situation, I think the one that I saw was from the early 90s when she was obviously a very much an elder woman at that point. For starters, she didn't fully understand the implications of that. Mm. Which is to say that, in her words, that it was most certainly a permanent state of affairs. And I don't think she fully understood what it meant in general. But not too long after, Turing decided to call it off. And the reason he ultimately called it off was because while it would have caused her and certainly did cause her pain in the short term, he knew that, if he had went on and married her and was leading a double life, that in time it would hurt her far more.
3: Yeah, so they were due to being married, but it was called off eventually. That was the re- reality of it. And I guess you don't even see that happen in the film. Yeah, like in the film, they don't actually end up getting married either. But no, what a it- shame it was to have to try and hide your sexuality like that and pretend to just be straight.
0: And it was the case for a very long time afterwards. Mm-hmm. So. For her, Alan did care for her, but obviously not in a romantic way. And he knew that it was better just to pull off the bandage right then and there and just have the way with it. Whereas in the movie, she has a much more righteous reaction Mm -hmm. than she seemed to based on her own recollections in interview from real life, where it's like, well, you know, we have love and marriage in our own way. As far as I can hmm. tell, that's not the case. Uh, she didn't fully understand, but in time she understood far better. Truly, and it was it was quite accepting of this. Um, to her credit. So basically, like the biggest thing that she does in this movie that I think is kind of interesting is she kind of serves as a social translator for Alan. Yeah. As far as I know, he didn't need that. He wasn't. He wasn't alien.
3: There's was some. Such bizarre portrayals of cheering in this film. There's the strange joke scene where he's trying to tell a joke and he gives everyone an apple. It like like I said, it's like a caricature at points. So I get why they gave him this sort of social translator character. But that wasn't needed. And with things like autism, it just it's it's such a horrendous depiction that Hollywood has gotten away with for so long now of depicting sort of neurodivergent people. In this way that they're geniuses, but terrible at socialing in any other capacity. And it's just crap.
0: It's not good. No.
3: It's not, not good. And it
0: makes it age very, very poorly. It has, uh,
3: yeah. That, like I said, it's part of that era of things like with Sheldon, like with Sherlock, like with this film, like with uh, fear of everything. It's just got it just it really caught the zeitgeist of Hollywood and media for a moment there.
0: Yeah, it definitely did. And this is very much a example of that in the extreme when from everything that we can tell, well, you know, what is, it's very difficult to make a retroactive posthumous diagnosis like that. Mm. Oh yeah. Simply put. And obviously of any sort, you know, obviously we've tried to do it to a much greater extreme in terms of duration and time with, uh, with Kristen in terms of Commodus and Caligula, hmm. but in this case, we have a lot more information and it's still really difficult, but as far as I know, I've not heard anybody that supports this particular theory regarding
3: Alan Turing. It's not really that heard of these days, since it's so affront to try and make a retroactive diagnosis, as you're saying. It's not even worth it. If we, we know what he was like as a person. We have actual accounts of who he was as a person. That's maybe how we should be judging him as opposed to judging him on what he potentially was.
0: Yes, and there's enough there yeah. to run with in so many ways, not just in terms of a movie, but in terms of really getting a greater understanding of the individual in question.
3: And something else in regards to Alan as a person and it's something i read if you can highlight this that'd be amazing i read he actually wasn't as secretive about his sexuality as the film depicts so obviously he wasn't running around screaming his gay to the high heavens but apparently he was more open about it with like friends and like colleagues apparently he even made the occasional pass at um, other colleagues at parties and work gatherings at times which isn't which sounds completely different to the Turing we see in this film. I don't know nearly enough mm. about
0: that particular element of his character mm. or behavior. It might be true. Mm. I don't I don't know, but he definitely was more open to those he'd actually trusted.
3: Yeah. Which you don't see in this film at all.
0: No, and you know, as far as Bletchley goes you wouldn't want to be that open about it there.
3: Yeah, it's all about secrecy there. You, you don't need to as well.
0: Any possibility that you could be considered basically a potential leak by blackmail, mm. you know, you're basically inviting trouble at that point. No question. So I can't say as much about that, unfortunately. So the next person that I think we really need to take a serious look at in this film, Patrick, because it is off the wall, is the person of John Cairncross, who they show working with Alan Turing in Hut Eight, which he most certainly did not do. Mm-hmm. And I believe you are familiar with the Cambridge Five.
3: Yes, yes, I'm somewhat familiar with them. But if you want to share some more light on them, that'd be amazing.
0: The Cambridge Five were five undergraduate students in the early 1930s attending Cambridge as undergraduates that mm. were recruited by Soviet intelligence. Yeah. Years Spies. before they would ever actually assume positions of value to Soviet intelligence. These fives were Donald McLean, Guy Burgess, Kim Philby, Antony Blunt, and John Cairncross. And part of the idea with the Cambridge Five when they were originally recruited in the early 30s, which was a from the Soviet perspective, an absolute batshit crazy time to actually be recruited given Mm. the purges that were about to break out throughout the 30s that were undertaken by Stalin, of which the NKVD, which would later effectively become the KGB, most certainly became a target of as well as being the instrument of. And Heron Cross is largely considered the, the fifth guy that they didn't figure out about until years later. So guys, if... If you are listening or watching to this at home and you are not familiar with the story of the Cambridge Five, go look it up because it is ridiculous. It is so interesting. Well, in any case, Aaron Cross was at Bletchley Park, but he was not in Hut 8. I think he might have been a translator, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And in the film, obviously, they show him working with Alan Turing and quite critically, they see him trying to blackmail Alan Turing. Basically that Karen Cross knew he was gay, and when Alan Turing kind of put it together that Karen Cross was passing intelligence from the park onto the Soviets, that I will expose you if you expose me. This definitely didn't happen. No, This definitely didn't happen. One is they didn't work together at Hut 8, There's no evidence that they ever met at Bletchley Park. And as far as I can tell, Patrick, there's no evidence that they had ever met at all.
3: That's that's ludicrous how much they changed that. He's like Alan's closest friend in the film in Hate. Yeah, they they, 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 they kind of
0: make him buddy up.
3: Yeah, and the reality of the matter was they never really met one another.
0: Not a chance.
3: That's terrible.
0: It is. And so, of course, Alan, when he later has, shows, what's his face, Uh, Menzies Mm. in Joan Clark's apartment, and he makes it appear as if that Menzies is somehow, for whatever reason, has Joan Clark in captivity to try to get Turing to admit that he's some kind of Soviet agent. He spills the beans on John Cairncross. And, of course, that's not the reason at all in the film why Menzies was there, but then Menzies, once again, and a demonstration of his vast overcompetency compared to reality says, oh, yeah, we know that's why we put him there. There's a problem with this, Patrick. Hmm. They didn't find out about Karen Cross's espionage work on for the benefit of the Soviets until decades later.
3: So, yeah, like it's a big reveal at the end of this film, like you're because earlier on, it sets up the fact that there is a spy somewhere in. Bletchley Park and obviously it pays it off towards the end and you find out who it was but it didn't happen like that at all in real life clearly.
0: In fact one of the interesting things about Bletchley Park is naturally the British and the Americans were in a shotgun military coalition with the Soviets fighting the Germans Mm. after Operation Barbarossa the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941 and the British would Pass along helpful information that they got from these decrypts to the Soviets. However, they never told the Soviets its source. In fact, they would funnel it through other existing intelligence operations on the continent. So I believe one of them was maybe it was the Red Orchestra they did it through, or was it the one in Switzerland? I forget. The point is, they always made sure that they obfuscated the source of this intelligence because they, they did not trust the Soviets enough to be able to say, oh, yeah, this is what we're doing to get the information. In fact, the only people that they shared what are effectively the family silver with was the Americans. So they're always very much protecting the source. And in this case, the thing that I really don't like about this is I understand why the writers did this because they wanted to show a depiction of his vulnerability Mm. based on the fact he was gay and how he was so susceptible to blackmail. Mm. However, the way this goes down, until Alan is literally what he thinks is his backup against the wall, he's basically aiding and abetting somebody who's committing treason in the most sensitive parts of the war effort. And I got to tell you, that's not exactly doing any favors to the depiction of Alan Turing.
3: No, that kind of makes that's kind of worse than that, that's like a worse crime at the time than being gay, like actually giving out war information. That's awful. It is. I mean, intelligence, it, yeah.
0: It, based on the fact that you signed the Official Secrets Act, mm. where you basically can talk about nothing in this regard, the fact that they even flirt with the idea that he could have been a traitor himself by aiding and abetting Karen Cross is like is seriously libeling the dead. In my mm. estimation, especially for a film that's trying to depict Alan Turing, which I don't think should be that difficult, in a very good light. There's a lot of really wonderful things about the man where you don't need to put this kind of crap into it.
3: No, like it's, it's so strange. You have to wonder like, obviously it has done great stuff for Alan Turing, but if you know the history, you are like, gosh, this, this does not portray the man in a great light at all.
0: No, it really, really doesn't. And it drives you absolutely batshit insane.
3: To defend this film by any means, I do think as a British person where where Alan Alan Turing came from, I do feel that this film did help raise his stature in the public eye an awful lot. I think there were a lot of people who didn't know who Alan Turing was. Uh, Before this film, I noticed when this film came out 2013, 2012 did we say 2014 came out 2014 so Turing got the royal pardon in 2013, um, which pardoned obviously obviously it was too little too late, the man had been dead for about 40 years by then, uh, 50, 60 years even. Uh, but it shows us, helps us then, obviously, as I've sort of mentioned as well, by now Turing now appears on our 50 pound note here in the UK. I think part of his notoriety. His his fame as a person, as a historical figure, has come about due to this film. I think it was because of this film more people know about Turing. I believe it was recently in a poll he was voted the most important Briton ever. Like he he's highly regarded now, and I can't help but think that this film didn't play a role in that, for better or worse.
0: It does the mm. thing. I ha- the thing I have against it, and as we were talking about earlier, mm. when you and I go and sit down and watch. A historically based film. Yes, we we don't have the expectation that everything is going to be depicted perfectly to the historic record. No, and we there are don't, a lot of yeah. good reasons you don't want to do that.
3: It'd be boring as.
0: <laughs> but the problem with this film, in so much as it's trying to depict the genius and tragedy of Alan Turing's life. In doing so, it literally sacrifices a ton of extremely important factual information along the way, to Mm. the point where it's not only libeling people that were around him, it's also not giving an accurate depiction of who this guy was and what he experienced. So I do think that there is, at least in tone, and to some degree, you know, more so in detail than this particular movie chooses to depict, a bit more accuracy and not going off and doing what I think are just mindlessly stupid things like this. That's just unacceptable. But the amazing thing about it is, Patrick, when you sit down and actually watch this film, it's actually enjoyable you oh, yeah, so, turn that part of the brain off
3: yeah and and to a lot of people not so much they turn that part of their brain off that part of their brain isn't turned on in the first place we're coming from we're coming from this film in a very specific angle as as people who know our history yourself especially paul you are very well versed in world war history so you have a very particular you know, knowledge of this film and the history of this film but once you start to look under the cover under the hood of this film, looking to the reality of it, it does start to fall apart. But a lot of people, they won't. They'll watch this film, they'll enjoy it, they'll cry, they'll cheer, whatever they want to do. And they'll go about their day and they'll think, I guess that's the true crime here. They'll think that's the entire truth. Absolutely. Yeah. Because
0: most people that will go and see this film are not up to it in the way that you and I are. And And that's completely fine. (laughs) Yeah. But they'll walk away with impressions that I don't think are particularly complimentary here of the person they're very much looking to give the you know the best depiction
3: of. And especially in the fact, if I'm not mistaken, this film starts with this is based on a true story. This is a true story. It has those words at the start. And that's just going to make people even believe it even more so. It's just... It's and just, it's, it, it can be damaging to a historical figure. I mean, luckily in this case, it seems to have helped promote Turing's public image, but I can only hope that in turn, people have started to uncover who the real Alan Turing was more correctly after watching this film.
0: Here's the interesting thing. We were talking a little bit about Graham more earlier, who's the one who wrote the script for this film. Mm, yes. He definitely, along with the creative team in general, definitely took blowback on the historical accuracy yeah. part of this.
3: I think there's a huge chunk on it's Wikipedia page talking about historical inaccuracy.
0: Yeah. And here's the quote. I'm paraphrasing this. Mm. When he was effectively backed up, backed up to the wall in an interview. To fact check art is to fundamentally misunderstand its purpose. Do you fact check Monet's water lilies? And mm. I have two reactions to this, Patrick. The first one, just in a creative sense. I do believe there is some truth to what he is talking about. Because, once again, this is not a documentary, and there are definitely some things for artistic benefit that are worthwhile. Things, changes you'd make. There are reasons why a film and a book can come out so differently. You get the idea. But I have a second one that's very specific to this case Mm. and the consequences of the choices that are made, which, very simply, I can state as blow it out your ass. (laughs) Because some of these things that he does in here, even not, I don't know if it's even conscious, are very much defeating the purpose of what he's trying to set out and do writing the screenplay for this thing. Mm. At least that's what I'm thinking about. And I do believe that there is a certain threshold when it comes to historically based movies and facts, which is, you know, there are some movies where you can very, you know, there's a clear tell that this isn't the historical lesson that you're looking for.
3: No, it's not at all.
0: This is not one of those films. This is deadly serious, and they make it seem like everything in the film happened as such, which, as we both know, is completely, in every way, garbage. Historical, hot garbage. And that bothers me. In a way that it doesn't necessarily bother me about so much about other movies but because i do have a tremendous fondness for alan turing and mm. admiration to say the least i always have a, a tremendous affinity for those that have that skill for true original thinking and that is something that alan turing had in spades in addition to the fact that so much of our modern world are based on mm. ideas that he either initiated or really advanced in a very significant way, theoretically.
3: The universal computing machine, Paul, we're looking at them right now.
0: We're using it right now. Yeah.
3: So I guess, if you don't mind me, to wrapping things up here, Paul. Sure. Say someone watched this film and really enjoyed Alan Turing, and they wanted to know more about Turing. What other books or films or documentaries would you recommend to someone who wants to dive deeper into this man's history in his life? I have two recommendations off of mm-hmm. that,
0: both of which I've mentioned here at certain points. Yes, yeah. One is Sir Max Hastings does a fantastic job of discussing Alan Turing in The Secret War. Great book. It doesn't just cover Bletchley Park by any means, it's an A to Z single volume account of the entire war effort in every theater by all the belligerents, including neutrals, might I add. The other one is something else that I mentioned as well, which is the 2011 kind of biopic, kind of documentary film, Codebreaker, where you walk away from a much, much more accurate depiction of who Turing was, what he was all about, and there's live-action recreation of of some Mm. various things, it's based in from the notes in a lot of ways from a psychiatrist he was seeing after everything that happened with gross indecency. And the interesting thing about that one is, is that the psychiatrist was actually originally a Jewish refugee from Germany that escaped Germany with his family. Mm. It's interesting. He kept extensive notes. And on top of that, in a way that very seldom you'll ever see for very good professional reasons in most cases, Alan Turing and this fellow, his psychiatrist and his family, they actually created a a very notable and deep friendship that lasted to the end of Alan's life. And so a lot of it are based on the psychiatrist's notes. And this was a pretty sharp guy. Let me tell you that, the fellow that was providing his psychiatric sessions in terms of being in therapy, that's what he was doing. Mm. The live action recreations I thought were, were done really well. They were more subtle. It wasn't as melodramatic, but it gives a much more human feel to the tragedy and genius of Alan Turing's life. You know, that's most definitely where mm. I would make a recommendation. In addition to the fact, I also mentioned BBC Four Station X. Which you can mm. find on YouTube, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much anywhere, and it's very much worth their time to do so because you can learn so much that you will never get from this movie, ever. Okay, and, you know, as far as our whole discussion here about this, there are some things obviously that we didn't touch on. Mm. Probably the biggest one is exactly how code breaking went down, and and the ins and outs of Enigma itself. And I think the best reason for that is neither you nor I. Uh, Are advanced mathematicians, and so going and describing how that actually went down, I don't think you or I are the guys to be looking for on that one, but it's definitely worth learning more about the story of how Enigma took place and a lot of the challenges there. Because while they're depicted in the movie, there's a lot of really silly stuff in it as well. And when you go and you learn more about the Enigma, you begin understanding even when they managed to break through and they did not have universal success across all fronts in doing so, there are times when they were just locked out completely because, whether it be a, a, a cipher change by the mm. Germans or in the case of 41 to 42, where in the case of the naval enigma, Karl Dernitz, who was the head of the U-boat arm of the Kriegsmarine, which is the German Navy, who they were mm. primarily facing off with in terms of protecting merchant shipping across to the rest of the empire in North America, where he actually added an additional rotor. So for the traditional Enigma machine, it's done with three rotors. He added a fourth one, which adds a whole additional level of complication. So it was very much an up-and-down story. They did not decrypt everything that came along the way. And one other thing that I have to mention that is shown in this film is after the war when Kara Knightley's character, Joan Clark, shows up Mm. and he's basically all over the place. They show him with a bomb in his living quarters.
3: Yeah, that's not happening.
0: Not a bloody chance was that (laughs) ever going to happen. That absolutely blows the mind, to say the least. How'd it get in there? It's like a ship in a bottle type scenario. (laughs) You know what? That's a really good question. That's a total plot hole. Like, how did you get that out? (laughs) Did you just recreate it yourself? Or what's the deal here? Because it was definitely not coming from Bletchley Park. Or in the case of the bombs, they eventually, I think, had somewhere around like 211 of them by the end of the war. And they weren't even all at Bletchley Park. They had a decentralized Mm. effort where they would keep them in various locations. So I definitely recommend that you listening or watching, wherever you may be listening or watching right now, Go learn more about that because there's a lot of really fascinating videos out there that can give you, and information, books, you name it. They can give you a much better look at the ins and outs of Enigma than you and I could. And I would very much encourage you listening or watching to do that. But what are your closing thoughts on this film, Patrick?
3: What are my closing thoughts on this film? I think it's a great film, not a, great, not a greatly historical film as we've established. I think if you just want a good film, kick back with and enjoy something a bit of poke, something a bit of uh, thought-provoking. Enjoy it on face value. Don't dive too deep into the history unless the whole thing will just be ruined for you and you'll be like us, ranting and raving at it like we are here. Yeah. What yourself, Paul? What are your final thoughts on it?
0: It's a tremendous contradiction in terms because despite the fact that it very much sacrifices every historical fact along the way. It's still an enjoyable film to watch.
1: Hmm. Yeah, totally.
0: And if you're looking at a scenario where the writer's director-producer is looking to give you a deeper truth about the tragedy of Alan Turing's life, this most certainly has to qualify as doing just that. However... However, it is not the history lesson you are looking for, and that's unfortunate because so many people, this will be the history lesson for them on the subject.
3: Yeah, that's the saddest thing about it. Like, this is all people will take, and this will make people's images of Alan Turing in their mind for their lives, probably.
0: Quite possibly. So, I mean, hey, you know what? Hmm. Them's the breaks. And that is the reality of it, but there's a lot of other good stuff out there on the life and work of Alan Turing, and there's no question that based on his work and what he did, not just for your country, not just for my country, but the entire world,
1: Mm.
0: playing such a, a pivotal and important role in helping defeat one of the great monsters of history in the case of Hitler... Mm. The paltry OBE he received in secret is just not nearly enough, and it is so unfortunate that he was never able to receive the laudits and laurels he deserved during his life and that it ended in such tragedy for reasons that Mm. today we would certainly consider wholly unacceptable and Mm. do consider wholly unacceptable. We understand the time. We understand the context, we understand the situation, we recognize that, but it's no less of a tragedy.
3: Completely agreed.
0: Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domine.
2: This is the AD History Podcast.
0: Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us?
3: You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT, but you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul?
0: In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at pkd and history as well as my reader submitted world war ii q a column the world war ii brain bucket where i answer all world war ii related questions which if you are on youtube we will have a link down in the description
3: that's all today for myself goodbye thank you and take care
0: yes thank you all so much until next time
2: like all good things we come to an end for today thank you for listening to the ad history podcast it is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick... Thank you for listening to the A.D. History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.